set up here. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it to Luke chapter 2, the Gospel according to Luke chapter 2, and we will be uh, looking at verses 1 through 20. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word now. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We recognize that this is a divine message. This is a, a privilege to have these words before us in our language. We ask you help us to understand them, God, to, to learn what they mean and, and to live them out. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as we've heard, we're starting a new uh, sermon series this morning, and the, the series is called The Characters of Christmas. And so today we're looking at shepherds and angels in Luke chapter 2. Now, Normally when we think of Christmas characters, probably our minds jump to things like nativity scenes or Christmas cookies or, God forbid, Hallmark movies. Uh, for me, personally, when I think of Christmas characters, the first thing that comes into my mind is a Christmas pageant. I had to ask Melissa Hines if that was what they were called. She, I'm citing my source here, Melissa. So Christmas pageants, you know, we have them and the, the kids at the church will dress up as the different Christmas characters. And I'm reminded uh, of how many years ago, when I was around four or five years old, I was cast as the exalted role of a Christmas donkey. And my cousin Jared converted this VHS home video into a digital format, and my mom posted it all over Facebook, and so I'm thankful for that this Thanksgiving. But anyway, I was a Christmas donkey, and so here's four-year-old Hunter in a donkey costume, 
singing a song called Friendly Beasts. I had a solo, and I sang, I am the donkey, all shaggy and brown. I carried his mother uphill and down. I carried her safely to Bethlehem town. I am the donkey, all shaggy and brown. Now, four-year-old Hunter was not quite as eloquent as late 20s Hunter, and so I, I couldn't pronounce shaggy. And so what I sang was actually, I am the donkey, all saggy and brown. So when I think of Christmas characters, I think of saggy brown donkeys. You know, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, with necessarily nativity sets or Christmas pageants. In fact, it's kind of nice to be reminded maybe by some of these things of kind of the the levity of the gospel. There is kind of a hilariousness uh, to the gospel. You know, I think it makes us funnier people when we can be honest about our sin and the fact that God loves us enough to save us and he comes as a a baby in a manger. It is kind of funny. But there there is a, a danger, I guess, of maybe taking taking these things like Christmas pageants and letting those be the only thing that inform what we see when we come to these passages in Scripture. We might mistake Luke chapter 2 with a children's story, which it is decidedly not. We, we can't forget or gloss over the fact that these characters of Christmas are real, and these are real events. This is real history. And, and so as we're looking at Luke chapter 2 today, I'm hoping that we can find three real historical and very important things from the text. I'm hoping we can see three things about the gospel. The first is that the gospel is something that is divine. The second is that the gospel is something down to earth. And the third is that the gospel is something that demands to be sung. So the gospel is something divine, something down to earth, and something that demands to be sung. So first, the gospel is something divine. Now, it might be helpful just to clarify what I mean when I say gospel. We see that in the text this morning. The angel appears to the the shepherds, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and this angel says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. The word gospel just means good news. In Greek, it's euangelion. We say gospel, but good news is just the meaning of that, that word. So the angel says, I bring you gospel of great joy. And so the gospel is the good news of how we as rebellious sinners, can be saved. You know, the whole story of the Bible is that humanity declared war on God, which was not a smart thing to do. And since then, God's wrath has been over us. The curse for breaking the covenant has been upon the world. And the gospel is the good news that he loves us enough to bring us back into his family. It is good news. And sometimes when we use the word gospel in churches, we can... We can use it in a way uh, that might be confusing. We kind of throw it around a lot. For instance, we do say, and it's true, that we have four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet it's important to remember that it's not the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Mark. It's the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. So it's one Gospel, one news, but four different people giving us their kind of take on it. And I like to think of the Gospels, if I may say so, as as kind of flavors. You know, each gospel has its own kind of particular and unique flavor to it. When I think of the gospel according to Matthew, to me that has kind of an Adam Mumpower flavor. You know, it's kind of steeped in the Old Testament Bible knowledge, and then it opens with, you know, this genealogy, and then 
Matthew's very excited to show us. It's 14 generations from Abraham to David, and then it's 14 generations from David to the captivity, and then it's 14, you know, and so maybe Matthew would be a math nerd, kind of like Adam. When I think of uh, the gospel according to John, I think that has kind of a Daryl Timberlake flavor, you know. It opens with, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, and all things were made through him, and Daryl being steeped in Greek philosophy and all of that, I think, uh, you know, John kind of rings of Daryl to me. Of course, if Daryl had written it, there'd be far more Lord of the Rings references in the Gospel of John, but taking that aside for a moment, the, the question I want to ask is, what is the flavor of Luke? What's the distinct flavor Luke has? You know, when you look at how Gospels begin, you can kind of get a sense of that. Luke begins his Gospel by saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So when I look at the Gospel of Luke, I feel like the flavor of Luke is, of course, they're all serious and they're all historical, but... Maybe Luke is the most scientific kind of flavor. Luke was a historian. He may have been a medical doctor. So maybe we could say Luke is kind of a T. Johnson flavor. You know, it's very matter of fact. Maybe of all the Gospels, it's kind of the most historical. And so it's no wonder that Luke in our passage begins by saying, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. What Luke is essentially doing is he's dating these events historically. You know, because... Uh, before the birth of Christ and the, you know, we kind of changed the calendar system, the way people would date time in the ancient world was based on the, the reign of different emperors. And so Luke is really trying to pinpoint this as a, as a historical moment. It was in, in those days that a decree went out from Caesar. There's this event of registration and it happened when it's the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so the first thing Luke is doing is saying, this is extremely historical. This is a real event, real history which shocks us, it should, as there's no change in genre here. You know, we have the story of Mary, who is a virgin and yet with child, and she goes to be registered with Joseph. One interesting fact I found is that Mary perhaps didn't even have to go with Joseph to be registered. Uh, It might have not been necessary. Maybe just Joseph showing up would have been enough. So the question is, well, maybe why? would she go? It could be she was far along enough in the the birth, or it could be that from Nazareth, Nazareth, where they left, there was uh, plenty of gossip in that part. I mean, you can imagine if you were carrying a child for several months and people asked, you know, is that Joseph's kid? And you have to answer, no, it's the Holy Spirit's, (laughs) you know. Uh, There might be some talk around the town. So maybe, maybe that's why Mary comes along. But they come, she gives birth, She wraps him in swaddling cloths. Any mother would have done that. Nothing unusual. But of course, she lays him in a manger because there's no room for them in the end. And then Luke says, in that same region, there were shepherds and then there were angels. I mean, just as historical as Quirinius, governor of Syria, he says, here's an angel of the Lord. And so the first thing I think we kind of get from this text is, the gospel is something divine. It's, it's something heavenly. It's a message that's carried to us by angels. So what do we know about angels or what should we know about angels? This will be really fast, of course, but here are some things the Bible teaches. First, 
in Hebrew and in Greek, the word angel just means messenger. So an angel is a spiritual being who is a messenger. That's what they do. That's what they are. Uh, of course, when we think of angels, you know, we kind of have this vision of wings and halos and floating in the sky. Sadly, most of those things are just not described in the, the Bible. There's a difference between cherubim and seraphim and angels. So when Adam and Eve you know, declare war on God and get kicked out of the garden, it's not an angel holding the sword directing every way. It's a cherubim. And we actually don't fully know what cherubim would have looked like, but cherubim are not angels. In the ancient Near East, they were lions with human faces and very large uh, wings. And the only cherubim that's described in the Bible, it's, there's one in the most holy place holding up the ark, but also in Ezekiel, there's a vision of a cherubim, and it's kind of this weird beast monster with four different animal faces. So not exactly a cute, chubby, little naked toddler that we think of when we think of cherubs. Cherubs are kind of terrifying monsters, it seems. And then the seraphim in Isaiah 6, those are not angels either. Uh, seraphim, seraph, it's the same word that's used in numbers to describe the fiery serpents. So it's the same word, it's just transliterated in Isaiah 6. And so, I mean, all we know of seraphim is they might be some sort of serpentine winged creature. Contrary to popular belief, angels are nowhere described as having wings. So uh, they're never depicted as female, normally just as men. And one of the strange things about angels, it seems, is that they can be confused with regular people. So you have examples like in Genesis, where they're kind of mistaken, mistaking angels for people. And then you have examples like right here, an angel appears in the glory of the Lord shone around them. And at the end of Luke 24, they come in dazzling apparel. So it seems like angels can sometimes just be kind of normal, take a normal kind of human-looking form. We know that there are good angels and bad angels. First Timothy speaks of elect angels. And in Second Peter, we read of the angels who sinned. And of course, Jesus says that hell has been prepared as an eternal fire for the devil and his angels. And so we know that demons are fallen angels somehow that have sinned against God. And we know that there are good angels who are ministers on our behalf, as Hebrews says, and also, as Peter says, angels who are longing to look into our salvation. They're interested kind of in what happens to us. But beyond that, you know, everything else you kind of hear about angels or see about angels, it, it's just speculation. The Bible doesn't major on angelology. It just gives us these few details. We should think of angels as spiritual beings who are messengers from God. And then one more thing, we, so that maybe, maybe that pops your image of this scene. You know, you saw a, an angel floating up there and he had hair like one of the little Lesh twins, you know, nice and blonde. And, and then all of a sudden a choir of angels show up with their angel choir hymns and they're singing. But actually it, it says there's an angel, a multitude of heavenly host. The word host is a military term. It's in Greek, it's stratia. It means army. In fact, one English translation translates this as angel armies. So the shepherds aren't getting a nice little angelic concert. Uh, there is a very terrifying man, perhaps dressed like a man of war, who appears. And then behind him is an army of angels. And so that just sh kind of shocks us awake to be, wow, this is not exactly how I pictured it. Of course, it's ironic that the army of angels are declaring peace and not war. What do we do with all of these angels. I, I think one thing this should do at least is it should help us to remember that the gospel message 
is something divine. It's something delivered to us from heaven. You know, it, it comes to us as, as from another world. It's handed to us by angels. And I think it's, it, we should remember the gospel is a spiritual thing. It's not like a, it's not like a best-selling self-help program. You know, this is, this is a message, an urgent message, spiritual message sent to us. It reminds me of what Paul says in Corinthians when he says, we have, Now we as the church have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He goes on and says, The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so this gospel message, is a, it's a spiritual message. And if it sounds foolishness to the world, so be it. You know, I, I think as Christians, we can't, we can't buy into this materialistic, secular mindset that all we are is just flesh and blood and, and, and there's nothing more. The Bible shocks us awake to this revelation that there's a spiritual realm around us. In this very room, there's a spiritual war, angels fighting on our behalf, God fighting against the forces of Satan. The gospel message is something divine. But it's not only divine, it's also something that's incredibly down to earth. So the gospel is something divine and heavenly, but don't let me lose you by saying, oh, it's just very spiritual. No, it's actually something really practical. In fact, Luke goes out of his way to show this in the text. You know, one thing I found as I was studying, and it's really interesting what Luke does here, is... Luke offers an alternative to the current cultural and political situation of his audience. He's offering an alternative. It might not be obvious to us, but it's not very common that a writer will just name drop you know, the emperor's name in the Bible. It doesn't happen, but maybe once or twice, maybe just here and then in Luke 3. So it's, it's kind of interesting what he does, but then even the language of what the message the angels bring, even that very language, is actually very political. You know, I, if you've been in America for the last few years, uh, and I'm not telling you how you should feel about this statement, I'm just trying to point out the fact that we're all aware of it because there's, there's a political message that's been in the air, and we're all familiar with it. I say, make America great again. Keep America great, okay? And in your mind, you think, Okay, I know, I know who you're talking about, I know what you're talking about, okay? I'm not telling you how to feel about that, I'm just saying that is a political message that's been in the air for some time. Can we all agree? And if an American says, what is that? You're like, are you out of your mind? Well, there was some political messaging going on in Rome and in the Roman Empire at this time that would have been circulating for over 20 years because Caesar became the emperor of Rome and 27 BC, and he went on a kind of, he started a propaganda basically, just promoting himself, and we actually have surviving some of these documents, this political propaganda. Here's just some of it. One assembly was writing and said, Augustus was, quote, a savior who put an end to war and established all things. The birthday of the God, it's talking about Caesar Augustus, marked for the world the beginning of good news through his coming. Here's another one that apparently you can see in the British Museum. It's an inscription. 
and it says, Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea. And then commenting on this, one writer said, These inscriptions, they identify Augustus as God, as son of God, as a savior, and they associate him with peace, hope, and good news. So then you look down at your text and you see what the angels are saying. I bring you good news that will be for all the people. Unto you this day, this day, is born a Savior. So what Luke is doing is, is pretty astounding. He's saying this isn't just some sort of spiritual, you know, choir performance. This is an alternative. This is a different kind of peace. This is a different kind of Savior. And it's not just spiritual, so it doesn't matter. He's saying this is it's a real Savior with real joy. It's amazing that the angels are are saying, this is good news for you, you shepherds. This is good news for you, because born to you is a Savior. It's, it's incredibly down-to-earth. But you know, it's, it's even more down-to-earth than we think, because think about this. Who did this message come to? This message carried by angels, you know, supported by an army of angels. God didn't send it to Caesar. He didn't send it to... Sanhedrin, Jewish leaders, it's not to Caesar Sanhedrin, but it's to shepherds. And now, this is where it's interesting to know a few things about shepherds. Shepherds were very despised uh, people. They, uh, a lot of them, they lived out kind of nomadic lifestyles. They were accused of confusing the difference between mine and thine. So you do the math, okay? They had, an, they had, a, they had a reputation as being robbers, uh, in fact, a third century rabbi commenting on Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Yeah, the third century rabbi commenting on that said, quote, there is no more despised occupation in the world than that of shepherds. So even though the Bible paints shepherds in a really good light, you know, culturally, historically, they were a pretty despised people group. Uh, so at the next Christmas pageant, if you know, Melissa or Michelle try to cast your child as a shepherd, they're trying to send you a message. You, know? uh, you don't want your child to be a shepherd. At least I was just a donkey. You know? Now, it is interesting. One other thing is, is that because of this reputation, shepherds, according to a, uh, a rabbinic law, they were uh, disqualified from bearing legal witness in court. So this means that Shepherds could, were so untrusted, so uh, kind of stigmatized, that they weren't even allowed to testify in a court of law. Now, the reason that's fascinating is because look at what the shepherds do, right? The, the shepherds receive this message. They respond with faith. They say, let us go. You know, let's go see this thing that's happened. They went with haste and found Mary Joseph and the baby when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And then it says, The shepherds returned to glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The gospel is something down to earth. And what you have to see here is that God doesn't merely just pass over better options. He intentionally chose. Think of, think of the things that God does, right? He intentionally chose shepherds to be the first witnesses of the gospel. 
people whose testimony was so untrustworthy, they couldn't even bear witness in a court of law. God said, those are the people that I want to be the first on the scene to witness Jesus. I just think it's a great reminder to us that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the strong. The things that are not to confound those things which are. And so often we come to God, don't we, with our kind of list of reasons why we should be disqualified, you know, uh, from maybe either serving God or being loved by God, whatever it might be, you know, God, you don't want me. I'm too awkward. I'm not gifted at that. I'm too busy. I have a checkered past. God, you don't want me. And we come up with this list and maybe we just kind of present it to God and we're like, good thing God can't use someone like me. But we forget the fact that the things that we disqualify ourselves for are the things that God says are the qualifications. God wants the people who are low to to lift them up. He wants the people who are broken to mend them. He wants the people who are weak so he can be strong through them. In Christianity, we don't champion those who are greater gifted. We champion those who are weak and faithful. This is the whole point of it. And the gospel is not only something divine, uh, it's not only something down to earth because he chooses people like shepherds, but these shepherds actually, this meant something to them. This gospel message like, was understandable by them. It, it impacted their lives. You know, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They aren't doing that just because they love babies or something. They're doing that because they recognized this is the Savior, you know, uh, there was a, uh, according to the Mishnah, there's a certain circumference from Jerusalem and all the fields that fall within that circumference, those sheep were destined to be sacrificed in the temple system. And Bethlehem fell within that circumference. And so it's extremely possible that these shepherds were knowingly raising sheep to be slaughtered, specifically for the purpose of being sacrificed. They would have been aware of that. And you have, you have to imagine that the shepherds knew something was wrong. I feel like ancient people knew this far better than we do, that God, even though he loves us, he has wrath for our sin. We have to make these sacrifices. We, something's broken in this relationship. We have to continue to bring death and blood to sacrifice on the altar to make right with God. Even pagan Gentiles in the ancient world knew that. It's something that we have to make sure we understand that God... At the very moment before we're saved, God is, is burning with wrath towards us for our sin. And at that very moment, he is still somehow overflowing with love for us. God is simultaneously, before we are saved, he's burning with wrath over our sin, prepared to cast us into hell because of how, how grieved he is righteously at our unrighteousness. And simultaneously, he's filled with love for us. Uh, Marguerite and I were eating lunch uh, yesterday, and uh, she said, what are you thinking about? And I said, I was thinking about what I just told you. And um, I had been kind of annoying all day that day to her, if you can imagine such a thing. So, you know, just sometimes you irritate your spouse, you get kind of sick pleasure out of it. So anyway, uh, she said, what are you thinking about? And I told her that, you know, that God is simultaneously overflowing with wrath, burning with wrath, but still loves us. And then I said, what are you thinking about? And she started to say something, but then she stopped. And I caught her, though. And I was like, no, what are you thinking? And I said, you're thinking that that sounded really good, aren't you? And then she said, no, I'm thinking I know what that feels like. 
<laughs> I was like, oh God, because she has to put up with me, you know. But this is the gospel message. God loves you, he does. But if you have not been saved, if you have not come to Christ, he is overflowing with wrath for your sin. And the shepherds knew that whoever this baby was, they didn't get his name. All they were told is that there's born a savior, Christ the Lord. They knew that he was the one who was going to fix all this. So the gospel is something divine. It's something down to earth. But lastly, the gospel is something that demands to be sung. You know, to me, when I read this text, it's always amazing just to think, why does God do things the way he does them? And the more you think about it, the more incredible it really is. You know, this whole text is moving towards two things, a baby lying in a manger, right? And uh, we see it three times in the text, you know. Uh, Mary has the baby, lays him in a manger. Angels appear. Here's the sign for you. We're expecting like an incredible sign, you know, like if I'm the shepherd, like, What's the sign going to be? You got a whole angel army behind you. You know, is it going to be a, you know, a golden baby or something like a baby Yoda or something? You know, like what's it going to be? And here's the sign: lying in a manger. You know, and then and then when the shepherds go and they see it, it says, "Here's the baby, lying in a manger." You know, not having a, an offspring of my own, never having produced one up to this point, I figure that I'm one of the the few people who is qualified to give you all an objective assessment of what babies really are because many of you have babies and of course not you know compromised your objectivity by having one you love them so much but to me as I objectively you know analyze babies they seem to be just chubby little sacks of flesh you know pretty pretty helpless you know they're just they're, they're, sure they're cute they're made in the image of God and all that but really it's like they're just a big sack of flesh that can't really do much and they seem to be something of an inconvenience in public situations. But anyway, that's my kind of perspective. But the whole point is that, isn't it amazing to think that God himself, he became a baby? Like, can we just wrap our minds around that, you know? And the reason he did it was, was, to, be our, was to be our savior, was to deliver us from the, the power of the devil, was to, was to redeem us, was to fight off the, the forces of Satan, And it's just amazing he chose to do it that way. J.I. Packer says, Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation, that God became a little baby. I kind of imagine like D-Day. You know, think of a movie, World War II movie, like Saving Private Ryan or something. And you've got the beaches of Normandy. And then you've got all the fortifications along the beach. And of course, you know, the Allied forces are coming. And uh, they've got all this. They're prepared to invade, you know. And now imagine how counterintuitive it would be to call off the forces and just parachute down a little chubby baby in a diaper, you know, right there on the beach of Normandy. This is it, you know. This is how we're going to take the beach. And yet that is the gospel message. That's what we're seeing right here in this text. The shepherds appear. An angel army comes behind them. The Savior is coming. And they find a baby lying in a manger. Maybe even more, more astounding, not that it's just God became a baby, as if that's not astounding enough. Think about that forever. But he chose to lie in a manger. Why does he do stuff the way he does it? You know, why? why? I just think about it all the time, you know. It's, in God's providence, 
right? He needed to get Jesus from, Nazar- or, yeah, Jesus from Nazareth to Bethlehem because that was the prophecy. And so God, even though a decree goes out from Caesar, we know it's God behind the scenes. It's the decree of God to make Caesar decree so that Joseph will, will go to Bethlehem. And why is Mary in Bethlehem? Maybe it's the gossip of the women in the town that Joseph says, I can't leave you here with these people. Come with me. And God works it all together. He orchestrates it all in this way to get Jesus exactly where he wants to be. And God, knowing every detail, start to finish, he chooses a manger. And you know what the significance of a manger is, right? I mean, basically nothing. There's nothing special about a manger. It's like a dog bowl. I mean, there's, there's nothing symbolically or biblically just astounding about it. It's just normal. It's just, it, one commentator said, if anything, it expresses isolation, it expresses poverty, it expresses rejection. But this is where God chooses to lie. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic. I think it demands to be sung. The angels sing. It's almost as if an angel's making an announcement and then angel armies who have desired to see what is happening appear and they just burst into song, you know. And then the shepherds themselves, it says, they made known the saying, but it says the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You know, it's tempting to say, what's the application? You know, well, we should go tell it on the mountain or something like that. But it seems like the real application is we should sing. In our hearts, we should, we should sing. This is something that should drive us to worship. There's nothing that should make us sing more than this. While Caesar is busy registering the world, God is, in fact, busy rescuing it. Jesus is not lying in the halls of power in Rome. He's not lying in the splendor of a religious temple. He's lying in a manger. And he's lying there for all the world to see, for people like shepherds to see, for people like you and me to see him. He lies in the manger. And until we sing this in our hearts, until we sing the gospel in our hearts, we can never really share it on our lips. And so this morning as we continue worshiping, as we come to take communion, and as we sing, we're gonna, the last song we'll sing this morning is, Oh, come let us adore him. That's my prayer this morning. Can we do that together? Can we adore him? Let's pray.